That is, of course, uh, Evan Almighty starring Steve Carell, a movie loosely based on the life of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 through 9, and that's who we're going to talk about today. Before we go to Genesis chapter 6, though, if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Today we're going to wrap up our series on faith. Uh, faith is an urgent commodity in today's world and our culture. The subject of faith works its way into every one of our lives, every one of our lives, in every imaginable way you could think of. Every day we exercise faith in various people and the things they make and the knowledge they possess, and we do it without thinking. I mean, we have faith in our doctor and the knowledge he or she possesses. We have faith in the medication they prescribe, and that medication may have been made in another part of the world. We don't know any of those people. Every day when we wake up to go to work or go to school, we exercise faith in our Ford or our Chevrolet, our Toyota or our BMW. We put the key in the ignition. We have faith it's going to crank. We have faith that the heater's going to work on a morning like this morning. And those vehicles were manufactured many states away and perhaps even in another country. It is ironic to me that it is so much easier for us to trust people we've never met, total strangers, the products they make, the knowledge they possess, and how difficult it is for us to trust the one true God. Our creator who loves us, has never lied to us, knows absolutely everything, God can be trusted. He always has your best interests in mind, no doubt. He has my best interests in mind. The men that we've discovered over the last few weeks knew this. Maybe David and Abraham and Moses and today Noah knew something about God that perhaps you do not. The first Sunday that we gathered, we talked about David. And when David's circumstances challenged his faith, he knew better than to focus on his circumstance. Instead, he focused on what he knew about God. You see, when we focus on our circumstance, we tend to speculate well, what if this happens? What's going to happen next? What if this turns out that way or the other? David knew better than to speculate. Instead, when David's circumstance went sour, he focused on what he knew about God. David believed that God could be trusted. Then we talked about Abraham. Abraham understood that God could be trusted as well. God could be trusted to do for Abraham what Abraham most needed to be done. And Abraham understood it. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, his only heir, the heir to the nation of Israel, Abraham decided to go without knowing. He went without understanding the outcome because Abraham knew that God could always be trusted to provide for me what I most need in that moment. Abraham knew that God would provide a better sacrifice, and sure enough, he did. Last time we talked about Moses. Moses knew that once God had proven himself to Moses, like he proves himself to each of us, well, then Moses could stand on God's promises. If God can be trusted, once he proves himself especially, then I can stand on his word. I can stand on his character and his nature, his ways. You see, God doesn't prove himself in every one of our circumstances. Every time your life takes a difficult turn, God does not necessarily show up. He did it the first time, or he did it early on in your faith walk. That may be what caused you to buy in. But every other time, he doesn't necessarily show up. 
If he did show up, then we would walk by sight and not faith. And again, Moses understood this. Today we're going to talk about Noah. You know what the story of Noah teaches us? It teaches us that reverence produces faith, which produces enduring obedience, which produces the blessing. If Noah's story tells us anything, it tells us that reverence produces faith. And faith then produces enduring obedience, obedience that's ongoing. And enduring obedience produces the blessing. Now, before we get into this, I'm going to take, back, take you back to your childhood, all right? I'm going to give you like a little Sunday school quiz. It won't be too much because I'm sure every third grader over there in Kids Jam can handle what I'm about to lay on you, okay? I'm going to give you a series of Bible pairs. I'm going to give you the first one, and you're going to fill in the blank to the second one. For instance, the first one, I say Adam and Eve. Very good, class. Here's the second one. Cain and Sodom and Samson and, very good, don't let this one trick you up, Jonah and the whale, very good, David and, very good, Daniel and, the lion's den, very good, last one, Noah and the ark, Noah and the ark, that's what we're going to talk about today, but here's what might surprise you, Goliath is only a very small part of David's story very small part. This might surprise you. The great fish that swallowed Jonah, that's a tiny little part of his story. The lions are a tiny part of Daniel's story. And believe it or not, today I'm going to show you, the ark is a very small part of Noah's story. Because of the increasing marginalization of Christianity... Many followers of Jesus Christ are facing challenging times in their faith. In other words, as culture begins to marginalize our faith, Christianity, it's insignificant. It's being pushed out of culture. Well, then we start to doubt our faith as well. So as the world goes, the impact hits us. Well, this is nothing new. This has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as we're going to see in just a moment. And thankfully, Scripture offers us encouragement and comfort in those times, such as the case in Hebrews chapter 10. Read with me beginning in verse 32. The author writes, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Okay, pause for a minute. First of all, the author's trying to take the reader back to an earlier time when they suffered. He's saying, remember how you suffered early on when you embraced authentic faith in Jesus. When you decided to follow Jesus Christ, you suffered for it. I'm going to take you back to that time because, as you'll see in a moment, these people were suffering again. You endured a great conflict full of suffering. I'm not sure that we can fully appreciate the kind of suffering first century followers of Jesus endured. I think we think we know, but I don't really think we know. In the first century, if you decided to follow Jesus Christ, it could cost you your business. Your livelihood could vanish because you could be cut off from a community. You could be cut off, ostracized by a people group. 
If you decided to follow Jesus Christ in the first century, it might divide your family. It might pit brother against brother. It might cost you a meaningful relationship. These people had endured that kind of suffering. Look at verse 33. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Verse 34. You suffered along with those in prison, watch this, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Church, these were real problems affecting real people solely for the reason that they chose to follow Jesus Christ. Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence because it will be richly rewarded. Now remember, he's taking them back to a previous time in their life when they suffered. He's trying to get them to draw from that experience to help them now endure the current suffering. And notice again, don't throw away your confidence. Do you know that that's one of the blessings of suffering in your Bible? We wouldn't use that word because we don't see how any kind of blessing could be associated with suffering. But one of the blessings of suffering is the confidence we gain in God. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, let me take you back to the early days when you first embraced authentic faith in Christ and you suffered for it. But remember the confidence you gained? Because why? God proved himself faithful. God could be trusted. Well, now, don't throw away that confidence because that would be like throwing away something of incredible value. Verse 36, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now, in the following chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, we often call it the hall of faith. The author gives the reader several biblical examples. He goes back into Old Testament history, and he offers several biblical examples of men and women who proved themselves faithful. In the midst of being marginalized because of what they believed, in the midst of suffering for their faith in God, they were lifted up by God, they were exalted. He talks about people like Abel and Abraham and Moses, Rahab. And one of those examples he gives is Noah. Noah. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 7. He writes, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, please sink your teeth into those two words because I'm going to talk about them more this morning. In holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Holy fear is reverence. It's, it's worship. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Let me explain that. When Noah put his faith in God and constructed the ark, his faith drew a line in the sand that condemned an evil world. It drew a stark contrast between the unbelief and evil that was in the world versus the righteousness and the salvation that was provided by God. So once again, in holy fear, Noah built an ark and by his faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that is in keeping 
with faith. Now, who was Noah? What do we know about Noah? According to Genesis chapter 5, Noah was the 10th generation from Adam. We are 10 generations removed from the very first man and the very first woman. Through their son Seth, not Cain, and Abel had been murdered. So through their third son, Seth, 10 generations comes Noah. Noah's father was named Lamech. Lamech. And his father named him Noah because Noah means rest. It means comfort. It means peace. And according to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29, Lamech named his son Noah in hopes that this one individual might bring some peace and some comfort and some rest to a world that had been cursed by sin in Genesis chapter 3. I'm describing the fallen universe. Are you familiar with this term, the fallen universe? According to Genesis chapter 3, we now exist, we live in a fallen universe. Remember? Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God created everything that there is. And behold, the Bible says, it was very good. It was perfect. The universe as God originally created it was glorified in its perfection. But in Genesis chapter 3, when man chose to go his own way as opposed to God's, by disobeying the one rule, the only rule that God had laid before him, the Bible teaches the universe fell from its original perfection. It fell from its original glory. It's the second law of thermodynamics for you physics people. The second law of thermodynamics teaches that every system in our universe is in a state of decline. Did you know that? Every one. The sun is burning out, for instance. It's not firing up. Our bodies are breaking down. We're not building up. Everything in the universe, biologically and chemically, is in a state of disintegration according to the second law of thermodynamics. Long before we had that terminology, we had Genesis chapter 3 and the fallen universe. Noah's father said, I'll name him Noah in hopes that he will bring rest, peace, comfort to this fallen world. Notice, according to Genesis chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and turn back there, we will find that the world is described graphically as evil and wicked. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, in fact, in my Bible, Genesis 6 appears on the, well, the seventh page. I'm on page 7 in my Bible. So we're at the very beginning. We're 10 generations in to humanity. And notice, in only seven pages, mankind, according to the Bible, has already demonstrated his own depravity. To get Noah's backstory, we've got to go all the way back to Genesis 6. He lived in a day that was, and I quote, where every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. We'll read that in just a moment. Again, we're only six chapters in. It didn't take very long for primitive man to wreck the planet. It didn't take very long for primitive man to demonstrate his total depravity. Look at Genesis 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that, here it comes, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. Every inclination, every impulse that man had, every thought that we had, every inclination of every thought 
of the human heart was only evil all of the time. In the original Hebrew, it means man was evil all day, every day. That's how it reads. Evil all day, every day. By the way, that one verse, among many others in your Bible, teaches us that man is sinful before he ever acts on his sinful deed. Man is sinful regardless of what he does because man is sinful before God because of what he thinks, because of who I am on the inside. You see, I am unrighteous because I'm not like God. Even if I do godly things, that doesn't necessarily change who I am on the inside. Every inclination of the thoughts of man, every impulse, every thought was only evil all of the time, according to your Bible. Look, that's why the politically correct movement will never, ever accomplish anything. Because we can teach everybody to use certain terminology, and we can teach everybody to be a social justice warrior, and we can change our behavior, but it's never going to change how we feel on the inside, is it? It's never going to change what we think. It's never going to improve humanity. Because every inclination in Noah's day, that's on the inside. That's an impulse. That's a thought. That's not a deed. That's a thought. Every inclination was only evil all the time. Verse 6, so the Lord regretted. The word is grieved. God was grieved with his creation. It's like a parent who has a wayward child, a child who can't stay out of jail, or a child who can't leave drugs behind, a child who simply won't do what is right, and that parent's heart is grieved. God was grieved that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. If you've got a New Living Translation, it's translated, it broke his heart. It broke God's heart. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created with And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret, same word, I'm grieving that I've made them. By the way, God has the perfect right to destroy what he's created. So please, don't sit there on your throne of self-sovereignty and try and judge God for Genesis 6. Well, it couldn't have been that bad. I just can't see how you're going to wipe out all those people. You weren't there. I wasn't there. And neither of us created the universe. You see, sadly, especially in America, we worship the earth and not the creator. We worship what God has done, but we don't worship the one who did it. We worship Mother Nature, but we ignore and ridicule God the Father. Keep reading. Verse 8, but Noah. Oh, Two enormous words, but Noah. It's a giant statement of contrast is what it is. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this corrupt environment where everybody was evil all the time, we don't even need to talk about what they did because every inclination of their heart And their thoughts was evil all the time, every day. But then there was Noah. Then there was Noah. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The word means grace. It's the first time that word is used in your Bible. 
we're introduced to the concept of grace. God wasn't going to destroy everything and everyone because of Noah. And again, by the way, God wasn't going to destroy everything on the earth and in it simply because it assaulted his righteousness. God had to destroy everything on the earth and in it because if he didn't make a change, mankind wasn't going to survive. Man was going to annihilate himself. So then there's Noah. Look at verse 9. This is his account. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, just because Moses was righteous, excuse me, Noah was righteous, just because he was blameless and just because he was faithful, doesn't mean he was perfect. Abraham was called righteous. Job was called blameless. Enoch was called faithful. These men weren't perfect. They weren't holy like God, but they were deemed righteous, blameless, and faithful because they were intentional about their faith. They were intentional about their faith. Skip down to verse 13. So God told Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Verse 14, so make yourself an ark out of cypress wood. So make yourself an ark out of cypress wood. This would be the plan. Noah would respond in obedience and build a boat. Verses 14 to 21, that's seven verses that follow, describe the plan in detail. God said, I want you to make it this long. I want you to make it this wide. I want you to make it this tall. I want you to put the door in a certain place. I want it to have three levels. I'm going to tell you how to load it. I'm going to tell you what to take for provisions. And when we get to verse 22, notice. Chapter 6 and verse 22. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but it would take 120 years to build the ark. That's what's called enduring obedience. Because Noah did everything, not just for a day or a weekend, or not just when he came to church, but Noah did everything God commanded him for 120 years. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. I mean, imagine the insults that Noah endured. Imagine what kind of insults we would endure if we decided as a church, hey, the best thing we could do for our community is to build an ark in the front of the building. 450 feet long. Imagine the kind of snide remarks we'd receive on our social media. <laughs> Imagine the kind of insults you would endure when you went to work. Hey, don't you go to that crazy church? They're building that boat. I mean, come on. Okay, that's these people in our community. Imagine the insults that Noah endured from people that are described in verses 5 and 6. People whose every impulse is evil all the time. You talk about harsh. Oh, and by the way, Noah was not a shipbuilder. He wasn't even a carpenter. Noah was a preacher. So for 120 years, while he and his sons built the ark, he preached to the people. 120 years preaching and not one convert, not one person bought in. 
Now look, let me be very transparent with you. I've been doing this for almost 30 years. If I had done what I've done for 30 years without seeing one convert, I wouldn't be doing it any longer. But Noah did. I would imagine the day that Noah and his sons cut the door into the side of the ark. He probably seized it as an opportunity for an illustration. Behold, he may have said, the door. You do not have to remain behind. You can find safety, security, refuge. You don't have to be righteous. You just have to respond. And still, as eloquent as he may have been, not one convert. That's just incredible to me. You know, earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, it's the very first verse, the author defines faith. He defines it as confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. You ask me, what is faith, Pastor Mike? I'm going to take you to Hebrews 11 verse 1. It's confidence in something we're hoping for. It's assurance or evidence in something that we can't see yet. Now think about Noah. Noah possessed a settled confidence in something that had simply been promised by God. It was settled in his mind. And what assurance did he really have that it was going to rain? According to Genesis chapter 4, it had never rained before. That's not how the earth was watered in those days. He had certainly never seen a global flood. So what assurance does he have? the assurance that it had been promised by God. That's all he had to go on. You see, Noah's faith illustrated the fact that after being warned by God of a great flood that was going to come, he immediately went to work. He started making preparations for something that he had not yet seen. So my question is, it seems the most relevant question, is what motivated him to such faith? What drove him to such obedience? Again, remember Hebrews 11, verse 7. It was holy fear. It was reverence. Once again, Hebrews eleven seven, By faith Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And that's what brought the blessing. Do you realize that Noah is the premier example in your Bible of faith and obedience and how they work together? What motivates someone to demonstrate 120 years worth of faith and enduring obedience? According to Hebrews 11:7, holy fear. Remember how Genesis 6 ended, verse 22? And Noah did everything just as God had commanded him to do. Again, it was very possible that Noah had never even seen a drop of rain. He certainly had never witnessed a worldwide flood. Nevertheless, Noah obeyed God. But what I want you to remember today is all of that began with holy fear. That's, that's reverence. That's worship. Maybe you've noticed that very often the people with the most reverence are also the people with the most faith. You ever notice that? The people with the most reverence are the people with the most faith. Now, don't misunderstand. When I use the word reverence, I'm not talking about stuffy. I'm not talking about pious. 
I'm not talking about overly religious. No, no, no. I'm talking about holy fear. I'm talking about worship. I'm talking about awe of God. It just seems to me the people with the most reverence are the people with the most faith. Because faith is not about believing hard enough. There's a lot of bad theology out there about faith. Some of you may have grown up in a church that taught you, here's how you do it. You figure out what you want, and then you believe God hard enough, and it'll happen. It's called faith. No, it's not. It's called selfishness. Faith is not believing hard enough. Faith is confidence in what I'm hoping for and assurance of something I can't even see yet. Faith is resting in God's faithfulness. Remember Noah's name. Rest, peace, comfort. Faith is resting in the promise of God and his faithfulness because God can be trusted We've demonstrated that principle every time we've gotten together over the last few weeks. David, Abraham, Moses, today Noah, they knew that God could be trusted. What I wanted you to see today is that it all begins with reverence. So, here's the big idea. One more time, and I'll quit. Reverence, worship, awe, produces faith, which produces enduring obedience, which produces a blessing. So I have to ask you this question. How much reverence do you have for our Creator? This is not an overly religious church. Pretty casual here. But please do not mistake our casual worship atmosphere with irreverence. Because it's anything but. Again, the people with the most reverence are typically the people with the most faith. It's almost unexplainable. Anybody can claim to believe in God. Anybody can say, I believe in God, but it's only when they worship and it's only through their obedience that that belief materializes. It comes to life. We call that faith. That's why it's so terribly important to worship in person regularly in your church because that's what we do when we gather. We worship. Reverence. Faith, obedience, blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a clear example for us to follow. We are indeed humbled as we bow before our God in light of your sovereignty, your knowledge, your power, your authority in light of who you are and what you can do, we are simply grateful that you love us. May we respond in reverence. As the reverence grows in our lives, God, may we recognize the faith is growing as well. And may that drive us to obey that we might enjoy the blessing that comes from you. I pray it in faith, Father, which with much respect to your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace. Great to see you today. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.